it's changed dramatically. When I first started doing sports in 2013, um, when I first started to do sports in Saudi, you would rarely ever find a woman training outdoors. Nelly Attar is the founder of MOVE, Saudi Arabia's first dance studio. A former psychologist, she's now a full-time athlete, entrepreneur, and also a serious mountain climber. Training hard is part of her daily routine. I'm Nadia Michelle, and this is TMR Thrill Seekers. It was actually really hard for me to find people to train with, especially because there were not many women interested in sports at the time. And there was only a handful of gyms that existed for females, and they were considered illegal because female gym licensing did not exist. And now, in 2022, things have changed dramatically. Um, you have women training in the streets. They no longer have to wear abayas as well. You have sports events and activities every week. The government is really trying to push for females to participate in sports. The government is also introducing sports in schools. So it's gone from a very inactive country. Actually, Saudi was considered the least active country in the world just about four years back. And now sports is advertised almost everywhere and there's gyms opening up almost in every neighborhood. Until 2017, the year Nelly opened her dance studio, women in Saudi Arabia couldn't go to the gym. But that year, gyms and fitness studios catering to women were finally allowed to get a permit. It's part of the reforms included in the country's Vision 2030 plan, which has as one of its goals to increase the population's participation in physical activities among both genders. Currently, the rate of obesity in Saudi Arabia is around 30%, which is still lower than in the US, where around 40% of the population is considered obese. Part of this growing problem is the easy access to junk food, which has replaced fruits and vegetables. But lack of exercise is an important factor too. Nelly thinks a country's population can be influenced to lead healthier lifestyles. People are really big on junk food here, unfortunately. Um, but I think people need to move more. This comes first and the government must nudge people into making healthier lifestyle choices. So for example, instead of burger ads on every street, why don't we advertise for fruits and vegetables? And this is not just the Saudi government, this is everywhere. I mean, you should nudge people, right? Imagine you're checking out of the supermarket counter and there's fruits and vegetables and you have your child with you. Your child is probably going to reach out for a banana or an apple. But then if there's candy, your child's going to reach out for the candy. So that's what I mean by nudging people. Try to help people in making healthier lifestyle choices. Make it easier for them. And if governments are more, um, you know, they take more preventative steps than reactive measures, it will cut costs significantly in the health sector. And we will just reduce the incidence of so many health-related problems, not just obesity, but diabetes and cholesterol. And yeah, many, many health-related problems relating to unhealthy lifestyle. That idea raises questions about regulation and how much a government should control people's personal choices. Banning hamburger ads might make business owners pretty angry. And people might want to binge on even more hamburgers because it's a forbidden fruit. But as someone who was named Influencer of the Year back in 2019, Nelly's idea seems to be more about nudging people and inspiring them, rather than dictating what they can and can't eat. 
I think everyone's an influencer in their own way. Um, whether you're online or offline, I think everyone has an influence. My influence is to encourage people to move and to encourage people to love what they do. As we all know, influencers are very influential. And that's not always a good thing. The rate of suicide among teenage girls has more than doubled since 2007, thanks mostly to unrealistic body types that have become the norm on social media. It's a tragic phenomenon, especially since those tiny waists and perfect complexions are fake, the result of easy-to-use editing apps. You might as well be watching animated content, except people are being tricked into believing that it's real because it's unscripted often, and also because they consume so much of it that it starts to become the reality in some strange way. But over the last couple of years, there's been a positive shift towards more diversity and body types. In some cases, this includes portraying obesity as desirable. Without naming names, some brands are glamorizing obesity through their marketing as a strategy to be more inclusive. On the surface, that's a great thing because no one should be excluded or made to feel bad about themselves. In the Middle East and a few other parts of the world like Africa, the beauty of fat is not new. It's been a cultural phenomenon for a really long time. One of these traditions is known in Arabic as le blu, which involves fattening up girls as young as 12 so they can be more desirable for marriage. To achieve optimal plumpness, some females consume as many as 16,000 calories a day. But back to social media. I wondered what Nelly thought about fatness being sold as beautiful and this idea, this growing idea of body positivity. We all come in different shapes and sizes. And uh, it's a beautiful thing when someone's confident. I think it's the most beautiful thing to be confident and to live authentically. Having said that, I still believe people should take care of their health and their lifestyle choices, whatever that looks like. I feel like health should always be prioritized because at the end of the day, Nadia, what matters is health. When you're sick, work won't matter. You know, your small challenges on a day-to-day basis won't matter. The most important thing is your health. For example, I train a lot. And depending on my training, my body changes. So right now, I've actually put on some weight. And I've had to learn to accept that. It's an amazing thing that my body allows me to do what I do. It's an amazing thing that my body adapts in the way that it does. It has to adapt because my training is adapting. And when my training adapts or when my training changes, my nutrition changes. So now most of what I'm eating is carbohydrates. Um, it's actually, it makes up 70% of what I eat because I, I spend a lot of time doing endurance. But that means there's no definition on my body. But my performance has been doing, like my performance has been improving over the weeks. So then I think, what matters to me? Is it how I look or how I feel? And if I feel good, you know, no matter what I look like, I'll be happy. And it's so important for people to accept their bodies. It's just, it's never going to look like someone else's body. And that's what's amazing. It's your body. And your body allows you to do all these things in life. So we, I feel like we must learn how to celebrate what our bodies can do versus punish our bodies for what they should look like. So when I'm training for a marathon or triathlon, I actually, um, I, I, I tend to become a lot leaner. Um, it's a lot of body weight training. So there's a lot of running, cycling, swimming, all of which are body weight training. And maybe there's one session a week where I'm lifting, that's cross training. But the entire sport, you're just uh, using your own body weight. So I tend to become leaner. 
with mountaineering, I tend to buck up actually, or I, I my legs tend to grow quite a lot because I just train for hours and hours with a pack on my back. And there's plenty of strength that goes into the training process, all of which relates to core and legs. So I find my legs growing and my core getting stronger, but my arms are kind of neglected. And it's it's just amazing. Spend a couple of weeks doing this kind of training and your body changes and you feel different. And then spend a couple of weeks doing some other type of training and you'll see how your body adapts. And it's a beautiful thing. Diet is key when training to climb a mountain. The sustained energy you need at high altitudes requires extra calories, lots of them, mostly from complex carbohydrates such as whole grains, which digest slowly and don't spike blood sugar. The International Climbing and Mountaineering Federation recommends that mountaineers consume between 50 and 65% of their caloric intake with carbs. That's a far cry from the high-protein diet that many athletes follow. I eat while I train, and then I eat after I train. So there's a lot of eating. (laughs) And then just throughout the day, I'm super hungry because the training is more demanding. At least for my body type, it's more demanding. I find that I'm I eat a lot more and I crave a lot more carbohydrates. I do have rice. I do have lentils. I do have uh, legumes. I do have bread. Sometimes I try to have gluten-free options um, because I am gluten intolerant, but it's it's not always simple. So I just, I tend to have um, any type of carb and I have them usually for every meal. I try to avoid processed food as much as possible. But because we spend a lot of time outdoors, um, sometimes the easiest snacks is a bar or like a pack of chips. And on climbs, especially, we end up eating a lot of junk food, actually. But at least when I'm training, I would say 80% of the time, my food is clean. My food is, um, it consists of greens, fruits, whole food. And 20% of the time, I would have processed food or I would be eating out and having some dessert. As an official influencer, both online and in real life, Nellie has put a lot of thought into what really gets people to change their lifestyle habits. Beyond being influenced, it has a lot to do with setting personal goals. So initially, I feel what leads people to to training or to start training is because they want to lose weight. They have a certain event, they want to lose weight, they want to look like what they've looked like five years ago. It's mainly for weight loss. But that I find is not sustainable because once you lose the weight, what are you then going to do? In a lot of cases, people stop training once they reach their goal of losing weight. Nellie has competed in two Ironman races and six global marathons and ultramarathons. She's climbed 14 mountains, including Everest, and four of the seven summits. Those are the highest mountain on each continent. And it all started as a way to relax passion of mine in sports really started when I was in my 20s and it was um, it was a time when I was going through a lot of anxiety I was in my master's degree in the UK and sports was a way for me to channel the stress the anxiety to think of just to, to think to have like this time by myself and I feel like that was um that was a turning point in my life when I started to really appreciate sports because when I moved then when I moved back to Lebanon at the time I started to hike everywhere and then I moved to Saudi and I was working as a therapist initially Um, but I felt like there was something really missing in my life when I wasn't doing sports so then I started to teach classes here and um, 
yeah, long story short, this passion turned into a job and then it became my entire life now. It's it's my full-time job. And when I'm not training and working in sports, I'm thinking about sports and daydreaming about sports. And every sport I've participated in has taught me invaluable lessons. And it's introduced me to friends all across the world and exposed me to unforgettable experiences. So I love dance. I love running, triathlons, um, diving, free diving and scuba diving, high altitude mountaineering. I, I feel like all these different types of sports or physical activities help you practice self-discipline, self-care. A lot of the times it gets you closer to others and you get to practice teamwork. And the lessons that you learn through sports can be applied in your daily life. And this is what I feel I experience in every sport that I've tried, even when I don't like the specific sport, but I learned something new about me or about others, about the experience. And it just makes you stronger every time. Sports has an amazing way to do that. Nelly's schedule is one of the most intense regimens I've encountered, even after interviewing many athletes for this podcast. Her endurance training, when she's preparing to climb a mountain, involves running every morning with 20 kilograms on her back. Not only are the workouts super intense, but her schedule leaves little time for rest. Okay, so a typical day would be waking up at 3 or 4 a.m. before the sun comes out, praying, journaling, setting my intentions, all within like about half an hour, getting ready and we head out. We head out to train whether that's in the desert, whether that's, you know, um, us going for a run somewhere close to the city. We go out for a couple of hours and then I come back, shower, read, and then settle into work. And then after work, I may have another training session and that's about it. And, and I always try to make some time for family time in the day. And with the load of my training, I, um, I don't actually have much time to go out during the week unless it's for work or training. When I interviewed her, Nellie was training for her next mountain climbing challenge. She told me she was having trouble falling asleep at night and suspected it might be because she was pushing her system too hard. But she seemed pretty undeterred from her goal. The world's second highest peak. Can you guess what climb that is? Or mountain that is? Okay, so it's uh, situated in Pakistan. It's called K2. Nellie described the feeling of elation she gets as she prepares for these adventures. But then there's also a down when it's all over. Like most mountain climbers, she struggles to readapt to regular life when she comes back home. During the years leading up to Everest, I was, um, I, I was climbing smaller peaks. And uh, a year before Everest, a friend of mine, who I've been spending a lot of time climbing with, suggested, Nellie, why don't we just go and aim for Everest? Let's go do Everest. I thought he was crazy. I thought the idea was absurd. Um, but because it was so absurd, I couldn't sleep that night. And I thought, you know what? It could be a good time to do it. If not next year, then when? And just putting that deadline, putting a date, it's going to have me work towards it. It's going to push me to actually start working towards a climb like Everest. So April 2018, I had that conversation with my friend. April 2019 was the start of our climb. That year, I had to learn so much. I spent so much time training, training from Saudi, training outdoors. It was, I think, a year of growth um, as an athlete, as a, as, as a trainer, as a sports entrepreneur as well. 
because climbing is multifaceted. You you have to look at everything. It just takes so much time and energy and also money. It's a big investment. The climb itself, um, it was one of the best experiences I've had in my life. It was two months. It took two months on the mountain, and the and it didn't feel like two months. It actually felt like a it felt like two weeks. I went with a group of friends, um, and there was a, there was a lot of people in the team that we didn't know as well. And at first, it was a group, but then it felt like we were family towards the end of the trip. We used to have breakfast, lunch, dinner together. We went through so many challenges, ups and downs together. It's hard to describe the journey, but it was um, definitely one of the best experiences I've had in my life. It, it just spending two months outdoors, two months on a climb, and a year building up to this climb, it leaves you changed. I mean, it leaves you changed in a good way, and it also leaves you changed in a, I think, not always in a positive way. Um, after I had come back from Everest, I felt like I was in a bubble. I felt like it was really hard to kind of integrate back into normal life. I was on this big climb, so much adrenaline every day, and then I'm back to normal life. And life didn't feel as exciting because it wasn't on the edge anymore. And actually, that feeling stayed with me for a while. So I think that was the drawback. Um, and that tends to happen after big climbs or big expeditions. I feel like I take a, a little dip. But then after the dip, I feel like my perspective has changed. I feel like I'm refreshed. I'm excited to go back to work. I appreciate my toilet, my my bed, all these small things. And I, and I appreciate them for a while. To find out more about Nellie's adventures and her personal training programs, follow her on social media at Nellie Attar. And if you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to like it and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find me on Instagram at Nadia Michelle underscore. See you soon.